Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products to adopt any investment strategy. On today's episode, Roberta Barr, head of ESG for the value team, and myself, Juan Torres, are joined by Andrew Elliott. Andrew is the author of Is That a Big Number? and What Are the Chances of That? Many participants in this series have stressed the importance of incorporating ranges to improve your decision making. Anitouk has further made the point that how wide a range is communicates how much you know about a certain situation. But that range needs to be representative in order to be useful. Andrew's book, Is That a Big Number?, provides the reader with landmarks and tools that should help us make better estimated guesses when faced with topics where we have incomplete information. In a world full of data and fake news, these landmarks can be valuable tools. Andrew tests our common knowledge of some basic landmarks at the beginning of the episode. We go on to discuss the links between words and numbers, why the average needs to be treated carefully, animal population and land coverage in the context of ESG, and the difficulties to understand probabilities. We hope you enjoy it. So, Andrew, thank you very much for being part of the Value Perspective. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank um, you very maybe, much. Yeah. Can you, can you please uh, give us a little bit of background about yourself? You wrote a very nice book, very interesting, which I hope we can cover in more detail. Is that a big number? It's full of great insights. And also, uh, please tell us all about your new book, which is coming in the next few uh, weeks. What are the chances of that? Yeah, a pleasure. Uh, Is that a big number started some years ago when I became frustrated uh, with the way in which the media and politics and public life generally treated big numbers? I've always, I'm an actuary by training. I've always worked in enumerate settings, I use numbers all the time. Um, and it became clear to me that sometimes there'd be a debate on the radio or wherever. And the point was just that the people didn't understand the scale of the numbers involved. So at, on a complete whim, I set up a little website called, what are the, uh, called Is That a Big Number? And you can go to that website, you can type in a number, and it will go back to a database of a few thousand reference numbers, and it'll compare what you put into and find some 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 happy comparisons, I could say. Um, some things that, that that might stick in your mind to put that number into context, whether it's a, a count of things, a population, whether it's a, a length of, of, of a distance, um, a, 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 a mass like the weight of your disk, um, it's it, it'll it'll give you a comparison that 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 hopefully is is engaging and interesting, um, and 
in putting together this website, I spent so much time thinking about how we think about numbers that I started writing the book um, and trying to pull out some ways of helping us when we think about big numbers. One of the key messages, of course, is that it, it's no it's it's no shame not to understand big numbers because you know what's inside our heads is 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 not a computer. It's it, it's a it's it's a meat machine. And the fact that we can think about numbers at all is 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 astonishing. Um, and the fact that we can actually develop the intellectual skills to work with numbers in this, these logical ways is, is is quite tremendous. But that does mean that it's a quite natural thing that we start losing a grasp on numbers when they become too big. Um, and so that was that was the genesis of the of the book. And and. Um, in through it, I, I articulate some ways of thinking of, about big numbers and lots and lots of examples to help you sort of develop some sort of an intuition um, and how to put things um, in, in, into get a sense of scale of, of the various numbers around us in the world. And your new book, uh, what are the chances of that coming in the next few weeks? Well, it, it started because I felt that there was one part of numeracy that I'd left out of, is that a big number? And that is how we think about risk, which is, of course, typically very small numbers, not very big numbers. So it didn't really fit the theme of the first book. But when I started writing, I was just going to do something like an extended few chapters on, 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 on probabilities and things. I started thinking about that. And it came to me that we, there really are some difficulties in thinking about probabilities. There are ways of thinking about, uh, about chance and probabilities that put on our brains and our minds in different ways. Um, and so it's it's not so much a book of, of solutions as a book about exploring the difficulties we have in thinking about numbers and understanding why we, for example, um, you know, you, I, I like the example that when the National Lottery was launched in the UK, um, they didn't uh, stress the fact that you had a one in 14 million or whatever it was at the chance, time, chance of winning. The, the marketing message was, it could be you. So there's a contrast between how we think about things individually and how we think about things collectively and statistically. And that is a sort of a tension that plays out anywhere we're talking about probability, whether it's you know the risk of, of, of catching the COVID virus when you go out. Well, it's not going to be me, is it? But for a certain number of people, it will be them. And so it's, a, it's that tension between um, what happens at an individual level and what happens at a collective level. And it's not that there's one way that's right or one way that's wrong. It's just that they, they play against each other and you need to be aware of both. That's very interesting. I think that you have prepared some questions to test Roberta's <laughs> and my own um, capacity to come up with some decent answers to some general common knowledge. Yeah. So okay. we are ready. We are ready to go for it. Okay. I mean, and these these are not gotcha questions. These are not trying to trick you or anything like that. It's just really to say, do we understand this, the scale of what we're dealing with? So I mean, the first one's an easy one. So, um, what do you reckon? How many people are there alive in the world today? Ah, live. Uh, 7.2 billion. You're very close. It's around 7.8 billion. Okay. And now that's, I mean, that's a, you know, that's a number I carry around in my head. It's what I call a landmark number. So whenever anybody's talking about 
populations and so on, I can relate it to that. It, I can put things into context with that. Um, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to skip some easy questions here, like which is the bi biggest country by population, which is the second biggest. I'm sure you know there's a China and India. But what's the third biggest country by population? Um, the, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the US. You're correct. Population of the US? Around 350 million. Very good. Very good indeed. What's the biggest country in Africa? A oh, I'm going to allow Roberta to answer that. Oh, God. <laughs> um, South Africa? It's Nigeria. Nigeria. Yeah, around, around 211 million. How many, how many households are there in the UK? We often like to measure things by households. Um, maybe 20 million. 28 million, very close. Uh, but if you look at the population of the UK compared to the world, it's just under 1%. And that's, again, for me, a useful thing to keep in my head. Um, that when I think about the importance of the country or the importance of some statistics, that to think that the UK is 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 one percent, roughly speaking, of the world is 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 about right. And the important thing here also is to think that the fact that this is only approximate is fine. We all we're trying to do at this point is establish an appropriate scale of of things that we're thinking about. Okay, here's something a little different. Um, you know that the sun is bigger than the moon. Yes. But by what factor? A hundred times. A thousand times. You, 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 you've bracketed the answer there. The answer is 400 <laughs> times, almost exactly. <laughs> now, the interesting thing, I mean, you can tell, you're going to learn that I love the numbers here, that the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon, but it's also about 400 times further away. Okay. And that is why we can get things like that annular eclipse that happened the other day. It's because visually they almost exactly match each other. Yeah. And I, I just love that. And it's, 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 it's good for its own sake, that fact, but it also helps you remember the other stuff. So yeah. As soon as you start making connections, and that's the important point. As soon as you start making connections between these numbers, each of them becomes easier to remember. Each of them becomes easier to hang on to. Um, oh, let's see. Let's talk a little bit about time. How old do you think the oldest evidence of writing is? The oldest writing evidence that we found. Um... 5,000 years. Very good, very good. Just a little bit more, 5,200 perhaps, but 5,000, that's fine. That's, that's absolutely in the right ballpark. Um, what proportion of the age of the Earth do you think that is? Oh, I'm going to allow the mathematician to answer this one. One hundredth? One millionth. Millionth, oh my God. It's astonishing that you know, the, all of recorded history is one millionth of the age of the Earth. Um, <laughs> uh, here's a nice, a nice sequence that um, you might enjoy. We've had an email now. The earliest email was sent about 50 years ago now. And that seems, that's a long time, actually. Um, but that's only one-tenth 
approximately for as long as we've had printing. So the first printing, Gutenberg, and his printing press was about five, well, 570 years ago. So it's about 10 times as long. The amount of time we've had writing for, as Juan said, 5,000 years, that's about 10 times longer than that. <laughs> if you go back to the earliest cave paintings, so the first paint, how old is the oldest painting? It's about 10 times longer than that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a lovely sequence from email to printing, printing. to writing to painting, a multiple of 10 each time. And that leads into something else that, that's really useful in terms of thinking about numbers is to think about the relative proportions of things, not the mm -hmm. difference, not how many years older, but how what, what the multiple involved. And that is also one of the key ways of grasping the big numbers is to understand the relative sizes by proportion. Anyway, so that's that's those are a couple of questions. Just to that's very good. Now, now it's our turn. Now it's our turn to test your your knowledge of numeracy. So I'm Colombian. Yeah. And my the colleague that works with me co-managing a fund, she's Russian. Mm -hmm. So what's the population of Colombia? <sighs> Let me get an idea. Um... I would say 40 million. It's a pretty good guess. It's actually closer to 50 million. And what's the uh, land mass of Colombia? Hmm. 10 million square kilometers? 1.1. Oh, okay. Okay, that's way out. And, okay, so Colombia is part of South America. What's the population of South America? One billion. 424 million. Okay, so I'm overestimating there. And um, which one is larger? The landmass of South America as a whole or the landmass of Russia? I'm going with Russia. Uh, well, it's actually South America, but only by a bit. I think that Russia is 17.1 okay. and uh, uh, South America is 7.8. Now, this is these are going to be the last two questions. How many languages are uh, spoken in, in South America? Well, I guess you've got to have some definition of what you kind of spoken. Um, I think it's probably bigger than one we'd expect. I'm going to say something like 30. Well, it's actually 18. But this okay. is a fun one. How many people speak Japanese in South America? It's quite a lot, I think. Um, 10 million. 425,000. Okay. <laughs> a bit off there. <laughs> Very good questions. Very good questions. Yeah. So, Andrew, this is a podcast about decision making and how to sure. um, understand uncertainty and make better decisions under uncertainty. And we have 
try to explore this topic by interviewing people that actually have nothing to do with finance. Although we have interviewed people in finance, but a lot of people that have nothing to do with finance. And one of them was Annie Duke. And she actually um, says that in order for you to make better decisions, a tool that you can use is that of um, making educated guesses and thinking about ranges. And then the range, provided that it's a good range, gives you an indication of uncertainty and then you can go in, you can go uh, in to try to get more knowledge to try to close as much as possible the gap on that specific range yep. and yep. i think that your book actually is provides with a very good tools in order for you to make better estimated guesses or yep. to put numbers into context in a world that is full of numbers yep. um one of the things that you mentioned in your book is that we as human beings fall prey to confirmation bias all the time. And the only way, or one of the best ways to fight against confirmation bias is to have a strong mental model that allows you to understand the world we live in in terms of numbers in in a rational and logical way. Can you please explain that in further detail and maybe provide a couple of examples? Yeah, I I was thinking about about this. I think that it's something that's come to me relatively recently, I think, is that a lot of our our ideas that we carry with us as adults are formed as young adults, even as teenagers. I mean, I grew up in the 70s. And at that time, for example, the world population was increasing at an exponential rate. It generally, generally, genuinely was increasing exponentially at about 2% a year. And I've carried that idea, and I think a lot of people of my generation have carried that idea with them um, forever since then. But in fact, it's not no longer true. Um, and if you look at the numbers, it was growing at about 2% per annum way, way back then. It's now considerably less than that. And in fact, the interesting thing that's happened is that the number of children in the world has stopped growing. Well, not entirely, but it's growing very, very, very slowly. And if you think it through, what that means is that the future growth of population um, is quite predictable because you know you're 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 you only get 30-year-olds when 20-year-olds grow, you know, age by 10 further years. So the future course of the population is is quite predictable. Obviously, medical advances and so on. Um, um, make um, you know allow people to live for for longer, um, but generally speaking, it's 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 quite a stable um, method of, of of projecting, and I think that many of us carry with us this idea that the world's population is exploding, and that there's just too many people, and it's going to get it. We all we're going to completely run out of resources, and something must be done, and we're headed for disaster. When really, what's happening is that the world's population is stabilizing, and if you look at the numbers. And if you look a little bit into the numbers and understand why it is that this is happening, then that actually gives you a lot more certainty and a lot more stability in the way in which, in the framework of your thinking. So if you're thinking about energy questions, if you're thinking about resources of other kinds, it's, it's a quite different mindset to think about the fact that 
the world's population will stabilize in about a hundred years' time if things, if current patterns um, go as, as as they are, um, and we're not faced with an exploding situation. So I think that that that's an example of of how just getting the numbers, looking at the progress of the numbers, actually can cast a, a whole situation into a different light. Um, and maybe we'll come back to to discuss. Um, so, some other aspects around this, but but the fact is that you can use the numbers to argue against um, these positions, which are driven by emotion. Um, and if you've and and the, and the key to this, in my mind, is to understand those numbers and their connections to one another. So you can see where they come from. You can um, see that they are supported by other numbers. So. I mean, I've said the number of children in the world is increasing only very slowly. That masks something, which is that in different parts of the world, there's different patterns going on. But nonetheless, if we take the things as a whole, that's, that, that, that's where things are uh, right now. There is this, um, what I find a fantastic anecdote um, that links a little bit what you're saying with the world of investing, which is the one that we live in. And is this a story about Warren Buffett in the 1970s when yeah, he was yeah. part of the Washington Post board? And it so happens that apparently he wasn't very outspoken during the board sessions. But this one time, a young MBA called Jeffrey Epstein, which I don't know if, the, if, if, if that Epstein is the Epstein that was convicted of <laughs> hideous crimes, um, came to do a presentation about the new ways in which the population in the U.S. were consuming media and entertainment. And actually, he came out with a number, and this is in the, in the late 1970s. He came out with the number saying that um, the consumption was around $5 billion. Yeah. And yeah. Buffett immediately raised an eyebrow. And, and he said, like, his head went uh, on to make the numbers. And he very quickly uh, made the statement that, if that number was actually true, that meant that close to 20 million young people in the US were consuming or spending the equivalent of $20 per month each yeah, at the end of the 1970s yeah. in the US per month. And just by doing that math, he uh, rendered baseless the 5 billion number that was being exposed. And because of that, the Washington Post did not make the investment. Yeah, and I think that yeah. one of the nice things about your book is that it provides you with the context and and and, and potentially tools to um, build those mental models. The more you can build out this, this mental model of how things fit together, um, the more confident you are in the, the conclusions you come to when they support support one another. Yeah, of course. So if you don't mind me asking a question now. Please. Um, so I think we'd quite like to explore the idea that there are links between words and numbers, which I think you touch on a bit in um, your book. But when it comes to decision making, obviously words can be a little bit problematic sometimes when trying to communicate, e.g. probabilities. So likely can mean very different things to different people, whereas probabilities expressed say, in numbers often, although perhaps not always, work best. And so, in your opinion, why do words matter so much? Yeah, this is this is a question very close to my heart. Um, 
I mean, specifically on probability, I'm sure you'll have seen the work done. I know he was a guest on your podcast, Michael Mobison, um, and Andrew Mobison wrote a, um, an article on the the interpretation of words for probabilities. Um, and you mentioned likely. I think likely was one of the ones that was most imprecise in how it was interpreted. Um, I think an, an interestingly interesting one was maybe, which was actually interpreted very precisely as being quite close to 50%. Um, so, yes, I mean, we do have very different understandings of what those mean. And I think that, in fact, even where there's a shared understanding, it's often an inaccurate understanding. Um, I came across a term the other day, a mathematical term called almost certain. And almost certain means in um, vir virtually indistinguishable from probability 100%. It doesn't mean 90%. It means an infinitesimal amount away from 100%. But nonetheless, in mathematical circles, that's an important distinction to make. Anyway, so a little bit of a diversion there. Um, but I think that the, the reason, one of the things about numbers that, that, that gets me going is, is in the first place, there is a big gap of understanding um, when you're talking about numbers in the millions and the billions and the trillions. And I think in part it's because they actually sound quite similar to the ear. Um, and I have to be careful, even when I'm talking to you guys and things like that, if I say billion, that I don't mean million or don't mean trillion. I need to stop and catch myself and think it through and make sure I've got the right word. And it's to me, it's also a signal that once you get into that range, that is where we are talking about big numbers. Um, but I think that it goes a lot deeper than that. Um, so for example, we are, the words that we use are not just arbitrary labels that we attach to concepts. So, and if you understand where a word comes from, you can understand better what it means. So, I mean, it's, it's a trivial example is that the word mile comes from the Roman mile, which is a thousand paces. So it, the, the number is baked into the language and that helps you get some sense of what it means. Um, I mean, Shakespeare writes about, you know, full fathom five, thy father lies in the tempest. And we know that fathom is depth of water, but what depth? We, but if you know that it comes from a word that means arms outstretched, then it's easy to remember that it means six foot. So, you know, these, the, I, I reject the idea that, that, that the sort of the numerate and scientific culture is separated from literary and other parts of our lives. I think that they all work together and reinforce each other and that they can actually all help. I mean, the one that delighted me when I learned it was that the word furlong, you know, as used in, in, in horse racing and, and, and other places, is a furrow's length. It's a furrow long. And it's how long you run a team of oxen for before you turn them around. That's a furlong. It's a furrow's length. And, you know, things like that, they, deli they delight me. But I also think they, they actually allow you to start making those connections. And, and, and you understand why in the old days, you know, the, well, the, what, what, was, what is now the 200-meter rate at the Olympics used to be 220 meters, which is a furlong. 
and all of these things connect and and it just starts to give shape and, and structure to the world um and I just wanted to say that one of the um, a word that is very important in our world, which you explain in the book, and I would love to hear the hear it from from you on the on this session, is where the word benchmark comes from. Uh, yeah, well, it's a, a, one of my favorite words because, of course, a benchmark is just literally a mark made on a workbench to establish a standard length. So, you know, you've marked your bench and now you can cut your wood or whatever it is you're cutting because you've got a benchmark. Uh, so when, 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 where did that come about? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to dig into that one to, to, <laughs> to get that. But yeah, I mean, likewise, a yardstick, you know, we use it as, an, as a metaphor these days, but of course, literally it's, it's a stick, the length of a yard, you know, um, and, and 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 the world of measurements is filled with these 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 things that refer to everyday objects. So that's a, a good segue into our next question, which is um, the fact that we tend to have issues when it comes to dealing with big numbers and thinking in big numbers. And yeah. in the context of making good decisions and everyday life we are constantly being bombarded with data and many of, the, of those data points are uh, making a reference to big numbers. Yeah. Uh, budget deficits, GDPs, number of billionaires, um, um, healthcare spending, defense spending, th those sorts. And also in the book, you make the point that when it comes to combinatronics, which is important if you want to adopt adopt a probabilistic thinking when it comes to probabilities and calculation of probabilities numbers can get very very big very quickly yes why is it that human beings struggle so much with big numbers and what kind of tools do we have at our disposal to better deal with them i think well to start with i'm going to come back to the point i made earlier that you know what we've got in our brains is 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 just organic matter. You know it's not it's not a computer, um, and our ability to directly perceive numbers is is extremely limited, more limited than you probably think. So we can directly perceive and understand numbers up to about three or four. If I throw three beans on the table, I can tell it's three beans and not four without counting them. If they're arranged in a pattern, I can go do a bit better. So if I throw a dice, I can spot that um, a six is a six without counting those numbers, because I know the pattern and I recognize the pattern. But at some point, I need to start counting. And that's easy enough. I've We taught it to children, and we learn the, these numbers, and you go up step by step by step by step. But there comes a point at which counting in that way, just literally counting one by one, runs out. And I would say that that runs out somewhere in the high hundreds going into the thousands where it stops being something practical to do. And you start needing to take other approaches. So you start doing things like grouping together what you've already counted. If you, you might be counting the votes in an election. You'll make bundles of them. The bank teller will pack, pack together you know, 20 notes at a time and then count those packs. So you, you start developing strategies. But I think... My belief is that for most of us, our ability to kind of directly or intuitively understand numbers runs out at around a thousand, which in the scheme of things is quite a small number. 
Um, but beyond that, we forced into strategies. And part of the book is, is to say, what are some of those strategies? Um, now, one of the strategies that's very common and is, is very effective is, is the one the scientists use, scientific notation. So we'll talk about, um, you know, if I've got a number of 900 billion, which is approximate spending of the UK government this year, 900 billion, uh, you know, a scientist might say it's nine times 10 to the 11. And they'd be absolutely happy with that, absolutely fine with that, and fluid and working with that. But you're not going to have the announcer on the radio saying, well, spending this year was nine times 10 to the 11. Um, you know, he's going to lose 90% of his audience when he does that. Um, and so it becomes 900 billion. Um, and that we're straight back into to, to, to mixing up millions and billions and so on. So one of the strategies you can use there, of course, is to reduce that, um, is to compare that to something else. So if you're saying 900 billion, how does that compare with the 67 million in the UK? You know, and and and, and you can make a, a ratio between those two. Um, so what's what's that about? Um, oh, I don't know. Um, 10 to 15,000 per person per day, something along those lines. I hope I've got that right. Um, but we can re reduce these numbers um, by, by doing comparison. And that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to a point where we can make comparisons. Some people have, have, have um, asked me, you know, seen the, the, the title of the book, is that a big number? And they immediately come back and say, compared to what? And I say, that's the crux of the matter, is to find the things to compare it to. And once you've got the things to compare it to, you can start making judgments. You can compare the spending this year to the spending last year. You can spend, compare the spending in the UK per capita, reduce it to a head, to the spending in, say, the US or France or wherever. So you, once you've got a basis of making comparison, um, you, can, you can start understanding, is this a big number or not? And you don't look at it in isolation. You've got to have a strategy for bringing it down to something that is comparable. One, one of the uh, um, landmarks that you give in the book, which I, I thought was very clever and I liked it a lot, is when you ask the question if the height of Mount Everest, is, is, is the height of Mount Everest a big number? Yeah. So yeah. you say, well, it's, it's uh, around nine kilometers or 9,000 meters. Well, yeah, for someone yeah. who is climbing Mount Everest, that might be a big number. Actually, actually, if you were to tip Mount Everest on, on its side, it's only a 10-minute drive. Exactly. Yeah. Um, um, well, the tools that uh, maybe um, people tend to use and maybe abuse when trying to deal with numbers and uncertainty is the use of the average. And, yeah, and yeah. you make the point in your book that you, you use a lot of averages to yeah. provide landmarks, yeah. but you yeah. caution people that the use of the average can be misleading and should be treated carefully. Why is the use of the average uh, sometimes a little bit of a flaw and can be so dangerous? Yeah, yeah. Well, to start with, to I start think, with, I think it's to remember that the average is often all you've got. And so it's the best, it's better than nothing. So I would never say that you throw it, throw it out. It's definitely the, your, your, your starting point. Um, but you immediately get into situations, particularly, I mean, the, the first one point really is 
is to do a skew, uh, skew distributions. So typically, for example, um, the distribution of incomes in a society um, tends to be a very long tail distribution. You get a very few people with a very, very high incomes. The same applies to wealth, of course. Um, and this, those few individuals or those relatively few individuals with high incomes pull the average up. So, you know, I, the, the old joke says that most people have more than the average number of arms because the average number of arms is slightly less than two. So um, by the same token, most people earn less than the average income. Um, and so increasingly people would look to measures like the median income as being a better measure of what is typical than, than the average. So that's, that's the one point that, that, that the pure mathematical average, the, the, the arithmetic mean is not, is not always a good, a, a good uh, measure of, of, of the centrality. But the other thing that the average disguises is the range of variability. So um, in, in the, uh, the book, What Are the Chances of That? I talk a little bit about um, one of the first people to make an analysis of deaths in the city of London, a guy called John Grant. And at that time that he was writing, the average age of death in London, or in, the, in Britain rather, um, was around 35 years old. But don't get, that may give you the idea that there were no old people in that society. That may give you the idea that that was a typical age to die at age 65. But that's entirely untrue because that figure is skewed by the fact that roughly speaking, one third of children died before their sixth birthday. Mm -hmm. So if you take those into the average, immediately you've got a different picture. But not only that, this guy, John Grant, writing back in the 17th century, he said that we reckon that 7% of the people live to older than the age 70. So even at that time, you've got people reaching twice the average age, and, and not just a few. I mean, 7% is, is it's not, not a lot, but it's not a small number. Um, and so to look at that, what you've, the picture is not that a bunch of people dying at age 35. It's a bunch of people dying very young, and then a bunch of then people dying, you know, 50, 60, 70, those sorts of ages. So the average there gives you the wrong picture. And the reason is that it, 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 tends, it makes you think in terms of homogeneity. It makes you think that everybody in the group must be like the average, when actually it can mask the diversity and the range. You know, if, 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 if I'm working on a computer system and I'm design my, uh, my website to cater for the average number of visitors, then I'm going to be, you know, I'm done when the peaks, peaks come along. You know, I need to think about the range. I need to know that it's going to be sometimes 10 times as high as the average and be able to cater for that. Likewise, I need to be able to wind it down if, if it's completely idle and not, not waste all my resources on catering to the average. So the average, it's, it's a very good starting point. It's where you need to think about to put your numerate thinking in the right ballpark but it's 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 not you know if you can get more information than that then you need to get more information cool uh well thank you and i was just wondering if perhaps we could go back to um i know you mentioned before climate change and maybe sort of some general ESG risks and often 
with these sort of problems, so, you know, population numbers or decline in animal populations, the problems just can seem impossible to grasp. Whereas actually, if we perhaps put some numbers to them, that can make a bit of a difference. So I, I guess I was just wondering, do you have any good numbers for us that you could you could put to some of these things? <laughs> uh, one thing that did strike me as it, it, it really startled me when doing the research for is that a big number, was in looking at animal populations. Um, I mean, we all understand, and, and, and rightly so, that there are, are animal species on the brink of extinction, uh, where the numbers may even be you know, less than 100 or you know, even smaller than that, and efforts go into preserving those species and so on. But the thing that struck me was just how small, relatively speaking, the numbers are of even animals and species that we don't regard as being at risk. I mean, I don't have the figures at my fingertips, I'm afraid. But I mean, I've, I've, I'm, I'm, um, in my childhood and in adulthood, I've driven through game parks in Southern Africa, seeing herds and herds and herds of impala. And you think, you know, there's, there's another herd rest around the corner. And you think that what numbers, what great numbers, you know, these are not animals at risk at all. But still, I think I'll be right in saying that there are, are fewer impala alive in the world than there are people in, um, in Nairobi. You know, it's, these are, we're talking about relatively small numbers. Even the kinds of animals that we, we keep and breed, the cattle and the sheep and the pigs, these are numbers that are not comparable to our numbers in scale. I think they, I think those are sort of livestock animals to number about 1 billion compared to our going on for 8 billion. And so, you know, it, it, it shocked me to discover that even in the, those species, which are not, by no means at risk, the numbers are so small. Um, and I think that we... We, I mean, I suppose the reason it shocked me was that nobody had told me this before. Nobody had pointed this out to me. Um, and I looked at what was the, um, what proportion of the earth is given over to nat natural, natural reserves, uh, open space for wild animals. And I came to a figure of about 3%, which is horrifyingly small. Um, but it also means that if you were, if you wanted to double the amount of space available to wild animals in nature, you'd have to give up only about 3%. And in doing that, you would literally double the amount of, uh, of land available. So thinking about the numbers and getting to, get to grips with the numbers gives you in a way, it's not a way of solving the problems because there are lots of practical difficulties involved here. You can't just go and decree that there's you know, how much more land is going to be allocated. But it, it, it tells you that the problem is tractable. It's on a scale that people could do something about if there was a will to do it. Um, and that, I think, is, is probably the most important message in that sort of area is, is not to be blinded by the big numbers, not to just give, um, throw up your hands and say, this is so big, it's impossible to deal with. It's so big. Let's measure how big it is. Let's break that problem down. Let's let's carve it into, into into pieces and see how big each part are. Let's take one of those pieces and deal with that. It's the numbers in my mind 
are a key part to getting to grips with 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 problems of all kinds, but 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 particularly those problems which seem so so daunting. Andrew, taking the discussion a little bit um, onto the topic of your new book, what are the chances of that? Sure. We understand that um, when it comes to the world of investing, sometimes if you buy something or whatever action you, you, you take on an asset and that doesn't go well, then it's very easy for us as individuals to blame the outcome on bad luck. Yeah. That we understand as well that even when there is no, even if you don't want to assign 100% bad luck to an outcome, we understand that every time that we take an action, even if we have a very good process behind that action, yeah. um, there, there's, there are going to be things that you're not going to be controlling and that are going to be left for chance to play its role. Yeah. So how, how do you go about? How do we get people to understand the role that luck plays in everyday's lives? I think, well, luck is an interesting thing um, because I think that when we use the word luck, we often turn it into lucky and we say that somebody is lucky or that some situation is lucky as if there was some quality that attaches to that person or to that situation or to the good luck charm in my pocket or something like that. Um, when really thinking about luck is much more, uh, there's, there's a, a psychologist guy called Richard Wiseman. I don't know if you've come across him, but Richard Wiseman wrote a book or he, uh, he did work analyzing the psychology of people who think of themselves as lucky or unlucky. And he came to the conclusion that it wasn't their experience that made a difference, it was their attitude. So a, given the same situation, if you, if you survive a near fatal motor accident, one person will say how unlucky I was to have that accident. The other person will say how lucky I was to survive. Mm -hmm. um, he said that lucky people will expose themselves to opportunities for risk. So you'll not be scared of going out and encounter. So, I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're looking for opportunities for good luck and somebody, oh, you know, good luck always comes to this person, that person more than likely puts themselves out of their way to experience different experiences, uh, meet different people, put themselves in different situations. And some of those, by chance, will turn out well and people will say of him, oh, what a lucky person. But it's because they expose themselves to to to, to more luck. But to come back to your, your your question, I was thinking about this because you, you gave, me, gave me a heads up on this one, um, and I was thinking, I was relating it to weather forecasting. So if a weather forecaster comes up and says that there's a sixty percent chance of rain tomorrow, and it doesn't rain tomorrow, I don't think that weather forecaster says, "Oh, what bad luck! It, I got it wrong just by luck." They'll go back <laughs> and they will say. How many times have I predicted 60% chance rain? What proportion of chances uh, well, of those occasions was it actually rain? If it's about 60%, then I'm doing about right. So I don't know how you go about measuring your stock picks, but I would have thought that you would anticipate there's going to be an occasional one that's an absolute unicorn, an absolute flyer that's fantastic. There are going to be a fair few that, 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 that are failures. 
And if you've got an expectation of what proportion fall into these categories, and I suppose one of the things that this relies on is there being enough, the numbers need to be big enough, coming back to the individual collector thing, you can't look at one of them and say that was unlucky, but you could look at 100 and say that, you know, 20 of them went sour when we expected only 10 to go sour. Then you can say that's not luck. That's probably a problem in the process. So, I mean, I'm looking completely hypothetically here, but it seems to me that that if you start looking at the numbers um, and enough cases and looking at distributions, um, I've got, I don't know if you've come across, um, there was a fellow called John Scarney who was a, a card shop. Well, no, he wasn't a card shop because he, he could have been a card shop. His skills were enough, but he put himself, he put the white hat on and he's, he worked against fraud in gambling and so on. And he's wrote a wonderful book called The Complete Guide to Gambling. There's a quote there that says that, you know, you can, you can put away all your good luck charms and all of your tokens and all of your ideas about luck. It comes down to numbers and you can work out all the probabilities with numbers. Um, and to me, that's, that's, that's the difference between the, the luck and chance is luck is when you try and assign some sort of other agency to it. And chances when you reduce it down to statistics and numbers, look at enough numbers and, and look at distributions and deal with it in that in that way. So I don't know if that's helpful at all. <laughs> no, definitely helpful. And Andrew, our, our last question for you is, um, so in your book, Is That a Big Number? You talk about landmark numbers. So sort of numbers that you can use as a starting point if you're trying to guess the size of something else. And in What Are the Chances of That? You talk about um, notable chances. So I think we're really hoping that there could maybe be one or two notable chances that you could share with us okay. um, that we can take on. <laughs> I, I, will do, I will do, but there's a caveat first, which is... Of course. That one of the difficulties is is in, in in dealing with probability in the real world. Now, I can take you into the casino and I can tell you about the chances of, you know, betting on red five times and, and getting a win each time. And that, that's fine because everything there is, is 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 mathematical and controlled. But, you know, I, I, from from the first draft of the book, I cut it out in the end, um, was a, 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 a thing about what is your chance of being bitten by a, an alligator? in the United States. And you, you look at that and you can assign a certain probability. You can say so many people were bitten and, and, and so many people were exposed and that's a probability and that's fine. But actually it's a nonsense to talk about in those terms because if you're living in Florida, your chances are way higher. <laughs> so there's, you know, these, these things get refined by how much information you have. Um, as you were saying earlier in the discussion, Johan, the, you know, as, as, you, as, you, as you get more information, you boil down your probabilities and you, you, you refine them. Um, I mean, there's some of the things that st struck me just in, in, in researching for the book. Um, um, there's a chapter, which I guess you guys haven't seen, on, on, on the role chance plays in genetics and in, in, in inheritance and so on. So there's a process in your body when you make new cells called transcription, where the DNA is transcribed into the new cell. And there's about a one in a hundred thousand chance of an error being made in this process. 
But there's luckily there's an error checking process, which is also reliable to a level of about one in 100,000. So the chance of a mistake actually being made in transcribing from one DNA from one cell to another is about, and this is all very approximate, about one in 10 billion. But there are around 6 billion cells in your body. So that means a transcription error for a base pair is likely to be about one in 10 billion. But your genome in each cell of your body has around 6 billion base pairs. So there's a 60% chance that any cell in your body actually has a mistake in it, in its DNA. Mm -hmm. Now, most of these don't make it any difference at all, of course. They're not going to, you know, um, they're not going to cause you to fall down dead. But there's a 60% chance of any cell in your body having a transcription error in it. And that, that startled me. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was rather, rather interesting. Um, but the other things that people, I think, misjudge in terms of probabilities is things like the risk of a violent death, things like that. So if you look at the number of deaths in the UK um, year by year, about 4% are from, from natural causes. Oh, sorry, unnatural causes. Um, and of those, the biggest category is falls. Um, and that accounts for about 1% of, of, of deaths. If you go down to um, motor accidents, we're down to about 0.3 of a percent of all deaths are down to motor accidents. And if you get down to things like murders and assaults, homicides, you're talking about 0.06% of deaths. So these are of very small chances, but they are the things that actually people feel strongly about and people get worried about. But to put them in perspective, they're actually very, very uncommon and, um, and, and, and improbable, shall we say, yeah. Yeah, well, that's fascinating, gosh. <laughs> um, so, well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been super interesting hearing from you and thank you for answering um, our questions. <laughs> so we do at the end of um, each podcast, always ask um, two questions to our uh, yeah. So if you don't mind um, sharing with us a book recommendation and also an example of a decision that ended with a bad outcome where you can identify um, if that was the result of a bad process rather than bad luck. Sure. Uh, I'm going to, can I cheat and give, uh, make two book recommendations? Because, of course. Because, because, because the, one that I cannot, the one that I cannot fail to mention and you probably know it, and, and I hope that many of your listeners know it, is Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Um, it's very much in line. I mean, it, it, it came out as I was revising, um, is that a big number? And I read it through it and thinking just yes, 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 <laughs> all the way through. <laughs> so if you, if you haven't read Factfulness, take the time to read it. It's going to change the way you look at the world. Um, but for a, perhaps a rather more interesting book, um, I'm a big fan of the popular writing of uh, an Italian physicist called Carlo Rovelli. I don't know if you know him, but he, he wrote a book called um, Seven Brief Lessons in Physics, which is an absolute bestseller. And, and, but that's not my recommendation. My recommendation <laughs> is a book that he wrote about 10 years ago, and it's called The First Scientist. And it's about one of the Greek philosophers called Anaximander. 
And it's always been, it's, it's puzzled me that we, we learn about Greek philosophy, we learn about their view of the world, and you wonder how these people can be come up with such weird theories, you know, that, that there are just four elements in the world and stuff like that. And what this book does, and Carlo Rovelli is a beautiful writer, is he looks at this guy, Anaximander, and he takes apart his theory of the world, and he points out that what he's trying to do at that time is to understand a system for understanding the world that is free of mythology. So he doesn't put things down to, to, to Zeus or Vulcan or, or whoever. He is looking for systematic ways of thinking and, and, and how, what is the world constituted of and, 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 and teasing through the principles of it in a logical and consistent way. Um, the other thing that's really fascinating to me about him is that, uh, um, according to Rovelli anyway, he's one of the first people to, um, to learn from his teacher and to pass on to his pupil. So he, he learned from a philosopher called Thales, and it's reputed that Pythagoras was one of his pupils. So this is the start of a chain of transmission of knowledge where it's not just one prophet speaking truth in the wilderness, it's teaching. It's passing on and expecting that your pupils will go further than you will. And I think that that's quite a profound and interesting thought because that, I mean, the, 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 the title of the book is, is, is The First Scientist, um, even though we would usually call him a philosopher, but this is the start of a scientific way of thinking. Um, so, that's The First Scientist by Carlo Rovelli, and I would highly, highly recommend it as a good read, as well as being, you know, very interesting in a subject matter. Um, for, for years, um, I, I, I'm, I'm no petrol head. I, I buy a car according to um, what's most easy and comfortable for me. Um, and for years, I would just buy old Saabs, close, big old Saabs, close to the end of their lives. Um, I'd get a good few years out of it. I'd spend very little money on them. Um, and let them go when they finally died and then buy the next. Um, and it so happened that one of them died and I needed to get one in a hurry. And this was when the Saabs were really coming down, to, you know, there were not that many on the market anymore. And I went and I bought one in a rush. And it was a diesel and it was late model and it caused me no end of trouble. And the reason was, was that I felt pressured into doing it. I made a decision under pressure, I knew that a decision was needed, and so I made one without actually thinking it through. And so I would say that that is a failure of process. It wasn't bad luck that I got a bad car. I actually didn't do my due diligence. I didn't go through with the process there. Um, and I think, in, I mean, my wife and I, it was a, almost fell for a, a, a scam the other day, a telephone scam. Um, and again, the, what, was, the, the, what was, was quite frightening about it was that the person was pushing you for a decision. Push, 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 push. You need to do this today. You need to do this now. Um, and we just stood back, thought about it. And that is the case where the process saved us, um, where we stood back and thought about it and investigated a bit more and discovered that thing was indeed a scam. But it would have been so easy just to go along with what the person was trying to do. And it was because they were putting pressure to make a decision without adequate um, time for thinking. Um, so 
yeah, two for the price of one there. <laughs> That's really interesting. Thank you very much for your time and for being part of the perspective. This was fascinating. Well, thank you very much um, for the opportunity to talk about these things. It's, it's uh, something in, it's close to my heart. <laughs>